Where there's outdoor work to be done, there's Echo Outdoor Power Equipment. Echo products deliver the reliability, quality, and performance you need to tackle everything on your outdoor to-do list. From chainsaws and string trimmers to leaf blowers and edgers, Echo's full range of pro-grade outdoor power tools are built to meet the demands of outdoor work. Visit us today, your local Echo dealer. Learn more at echo-usa.com. Echo. Power on and on. Welcome to Garden Views, interesting conversations with interesting people who have done and or are doing interesting things. So sit back and enjoy. Welcome everyone into Garden Views and on this episode we're welcoming in John Graham. He's going to talk to us about international diplomacy and some other uh, aspects but I first want to welcome our guest. Thank you for coming in. How are you today, uh, Mr. Graham? Jeff, I'm, I'm great. I'm uh, just uh, coming back from my own little garden of doom. <laughs> I uh, was in Europe last week, the week before last, and I came home with my first case of COVID. Oh, my goodness. That was a nasty experience, and I'm pretty much through it right now. But anyway, I hope my brain is still working. I hope so too. Um, yeah, I, I had COVID probably twice, but only verified once and it was no fun. Um, yeah, obviously it was not, you know, anything life threatening or anything like that, but, uh, still no fun. Um, so guess you're probably wondering who's John Graham. So I'm about to tell you. John Graham served as an officer in the United States Navy, including the SEALs for nine years, four years on active duty. He was a founding director and an advisory board member of the University of California, Irvine Center for Citizen Peacebuilding during the last two decades. He got his PhD from Berkeley. He's an author and professor emeritus of international business at University of California, Berkeley. And for four decades, he's provided... Actually, it's, actually it's UC Irvine. What'd I say? Well, you said I Berkeley. Berkeley I meant Irvine. Uh, it's, yeah. it's fine. That's fine. It's Irvine, folks. Uh, for four decades, he's provided expert advice and training on international negotiations to executive groups at Fortune 500 companies here and abroad and government organizations, including the U.S. Institute of Peace. In 2009, he was selected as International Trade Educator of the Year by NASBIT, NASBIT International. Graham has published more than 60 articles in journals such as the Harvard Business Review, Harvard Law School's Negotiation Journal, the Journal of Marketing and Managing Science, Management Science. His several books with partners have all been bestsellers on their respective topics. International Marketing, the most popular book in the world on the topic, and it's been translated into seven languages. He's also written articles for the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, USA Today, and the Christian Science Monitor. His research and writing have been the subject of articles in Smithsonian, the Chronicle of Higher Education, and the Wall Street Journal, Journal, and coverage on NBC's Nightly News, ABC's Good Morning America, Fox News, the BBC, and NPR. He's had over 130 million media impressions, and uh, his latest book is called Charlotte's War, which is historical fiction uh, with a message. So uh, obviously, this is a well-credentialed, well-authored person who also served our country in one of the most elite, if not the most elite units. So first, thank you for your service, and uh, thank you for coming on the show. Sure. Happy to be here. Um, honored to be on your show. 
Uh, I particularly like the variety of topics you cover. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It makes it all kind of fun and, and interesting. I'm sure your, your uh, listeners appreciate that, too. They do. It's a it's a curse and a blessing. The blessing is the le- listeners appreciate it. I appreciate it. The curse is that it's hard to find, you know, a, a niche where you know if people are searching for a certain type of podcast, this is sort of genre defined. So I do depend a lot on uh, personal referrals and things like that. But uh, this show is really an excuse for me to learn things and call it a show. Um, so I generally am only doing shows on things that I'm interested, curious about or didn't even know exist and figured I should at least know that they exist. Now, international diplomacy is something that I know that exists, but probably don't have much in the way of any insight on how to handle it, uh, other than what I've seen on the news, TV, movies, and read in books, which is probably mostly nonsense. So, (laughs) tell, you know, so I guess, tell me what, you know, you're going to have to lead here. Where, Where would you like to start? What would you like to impart to the audience? Well, why don't we talk a little bit about how people in different countries negotiate? So I got started in this business of, uh, of studying negotiation and international negotiations uh, back in the late 70s. I did a dissertation comparing how Americans and Japanese negotiate. Um, and that, that, inf- that study worked out real well. That resulted in my first book for business people on negotiating with Japanese in 84. Uh, I just learned all kinds of things during the study. We videotaped Americans and Japanese negotiating. We analyzed videotapes. We also analyzed what they say and, and look at nonverbal behaviors. And my favorite example is a question uh, for you. Um, what do you suppose the most common Japanese response is to an unacceptable offer? Probably thank you because they're a very polite culture. Yeah, no, it's silence. Silence. Well, that's that's awkward. (laughs) And Americans hate silence. Yes, our conversational style is uh, we we do pretty good at taking turns most of the time, unless we're in an argument. But we don't have many gaps or overlaps. And what I learned studying the Japanese is they often have uh, you know gaps where nobody's talking, and we. When we looked at the videotapes and we sat with the Japanese and Americans and asked them to interpret what was happening, uh, about half the time the Japanese during the silent period said, well, nothing's happening. The other half, they said they were using it as a persuasive tactic, um, uh, putting pressure on the other person to talk. Right. And, uh, you know, no matter in either case, it worked great against Americans in the 1980s. Um, we were giving uh, the farm away during the 1980s, and I talked 1980s, and I talked a lot about that. Um, we've since then replicated those studies in 22 other cultures, right? Um, and that's really the strength of my, the main body of my work. Um, all my writing about negotiation, and I, I have uh, four books on that topic. Um, is based on that work. And also I always work with colleagues from the countries. So my book on China, for example, um, I wrote that with a fellow by the name of Mark Lamb, who is a business person that actively negotiated in China uh, with Chinese and Americans. And uh, so that's kind of my, the main part of my background. Uh, I got interested in peace building 
In about 2000, it didn't occur to me that international trade built peace until Mm -hmm. then. Um, But that's really my mantra now is the best way to get to peace or diplomacy, as you call call it, um, is not through politicians talking to each other. It's through thousands of people trading with one another. And uh, so my most successful at least money-making textbook, is international marketing. And we talk a lot about that. But uh, that occurred to me that the work that I was doing, obviously the international negotiation, trying to help people understand one another, uh, was useful in all kinds of international negotiations. But I didn't really see it as peace-building then. And I've the last uh, decade or so, I've been working down a list of other peace building books on different topics. And I'll just mention them real quick. Sure. One is on uh, bringing peace within families. And that's a book on multi-generational living. And that's the solution to one of our biggest problems. Uh, it's one of the solutions uh, for the country. Is I'm a baby boomer. I'm decrepit and I'm getting worse every day. And so I tell my kids, I'm going to have to move in with them at some point. But we have a book on that topic. I also have another book um, on what I'll call the drug wars and how to how to prevent them or get out of the mess we're in. I was sad to see that we're starting to use that language again when it comes to fentanyl. We're yeah. starting to call it a war on fentanyl, and that's not the way to think about it. But anyway, that's a, if you feel like talking about that, I'm happy to talk about it. Yeah, but, we, we, we sure can, but we can go in the in the order that, that you want to go because I, I think that you're right. I mean. We've learned nothing from the war on drugs except that it's completely unsuccessful and to, to just repeat the same er- errors. I mean, but, but I see that all the time in, in things that I, I don't want to call the COVID relief bills unimportant because they were certainly important. Um, but the, the first COVID relief bill was sort of dumb and lazy. It, you know, gave a, some middling amount of money to everybody. And then it had these PPP loans, which, you know, you could see from a million miles away that they'd be rife with fraud. If they just divided the amount of money into every person in the United States and just sent everyone a check for the full amount, you would have at least given everyone, you know, a, a working amount of money, you know, the, to that you could, you know, some baseline living for, you know, six months or whatever while you're closing up the, the world. And, Hopefully, then reopening it, but then, to, to, but you know, you, you sort of give a pass for giant legislation that's done on an emergency basis. But then, when it gets renewed, it was the same thing. Then you get a new president, and what do they do? They renew the same thing again. I mean, so three three times the same stupid legislation. One time, you know, you give a pass due to exigent circumstances, and it's like we don't we don't learn from the past, like ever. I mean, your book. Uh, well, Charlotte's War, one of its main focuses, not its only by any means, is the war in Vietnam, the buildup and sort of getting out of it. Um, and, you know, we, we basically did the same thing to our allies in Afghanistan. Uh, and, it, you know, and like, who could foresee it? Everyone. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, it's just like... I, I mean, if three presidents ran on getting Afghanistan, we get it. You want to keep a campaign promise, but, you know, plan, you know, plan for it. Yeah. So what, what I always say is politicians cause wars. Um, there's an excellent book I can recommend by Steven Pinker. He's a, a uh, professor at Harvard 
the title of it is The uh, Better Angels of Our Nature. Mm -hmm. But he points out that we're living through the most peaceful period in human history right now. You just can't tell by the, by watching television. Uh, he argues that you need to look at trend lines and not headlines. And I couldn't agree more. You've already uh, makes the same case. Yeah. So I, I particularly like the, the four reasons he gives for why we're living through this great peace. Um, one is a rule of law. So for in the in history, people didn't pay much attention to international laws or things like war crimes, but now we're starting to pay more attention, except here in the United States. Um, the uh, a rule of reason, so we used to have a lot of wars based on religion. We still have that going in the Middle East, but that's the, the second explanatory um, explanation. The third one is rule of women. So it ends up that he found when women are higher up in government, we tend to have less violence. I think that's a really important one. And then the fourth one I really like, and that's international trade causes peace. And uh, we get arguments about that, but it's really quite clear that uh, the best way to get to peace is um, through international trade. I, in the preface of Charlotte's War, and I'm, I'm, let me talk a little bit about Charlotte's War. That's a book about peace. The main uh, theme with respect to politics is the futility of coercion in international affairs. It just doesn't work. And uh, particularly, um, uh, you can see that happening with Ukraine and, and Russia. Um, in the preface, I talk about the relationship between Russia and the United States in 1989. And things were really looking good then. Um, we were starting to trade. I was invited uh, to Moscow to teach Russians how to negotiate with Americans and Japanese because they were interested in both markets. And I went there and, and uh, uh, did the program. And I also uh, found a co-author in Russia to do a book on negotiating the negotiations between Russians and Americans. And uh, I went to my publisher and I said, listen, I've got this great co-author. He's already done a book on this topic in Russian. And it's just a matter of converting it. And I add our data in um, and we'd have a book teaching Americans how to negotiate with Russians in commerce. And my publisher said, well, how many people, uh, go to Russia to do business every year. And he had previously asked me how many people go to Japan every year, and that number is about a quarter of a million right. Americans. And the number for the Russians was 36,000. So he said, we can't do a book uh, with such a small audience. And the big trade problem we had with doing, there are two big trade problems with Russia. One is we're really competitors with them in the two major uh, things that they have to sell the rest of the world, that's weapons and fossil fuels. Right. So we just, you know, we don't have any interest in what they have to sell. And then the third thing was the level of corruption was too high. Um, I took groups of students to Moscow and uh, we visited an IBM operation um, in, in the nineties there. Um, they had a huge uh, bank of computer stations that were being unused. We asked, what's the problem? Well, uh, we have to pay basically 
to get the real estate and it takes a long time. And so that's, this office is just sitting closed. Hmm. But the, the corruption really killed the trade. And now we're back to this mess we're in uh, with Putin and nuclear weapons floating around. And it, it's really a, a sad lost opportunity. Um, hopefully, uh, we're going to get back to it. We have um, a cu- work on a couple of books and papers on basically what happens when sanctions end. What do we do as American executives, American companies, American people, the American government? Um, because sanctions are going to end at some point. Yeah. I hope sooner rather than later. But uh, that's these are some of the themes in Charlotte's War. It's also a story. I mean, you read the book, so I really appreciate that. It's a story about an extended family, kind of like my multi-generational families. That's mm-hmm. the way I think about things. And they're trying to survive three different wars. And uh, there's um, a lot of sadness and a lot of humor. There's some romance. Um, but... Uh, Charlotte and her family is is trying to get through uh, this awful period, and uh, I hope that was entertaining for you. Yeah, no, I like the book. I mean, it was an easy read, and I enjoy historical fiction. And there was a lot of things. I, I mean, I had no idea about Vietnam's history with China, for example. I mean, in yeah. back centuries, I, I'm fascinated by that stuff. I, and I'll admit, for the most Garden of Doomy reasons possible, I mean, this is Garden Views, but you know, they, they, they're sometimes interchangeable. And that is the proof that every people and every government and every leadership has, has been horrible at some point or another to, to someone else. <laughs> they, they were all horrible and we should stop trying to single out who's the most horrible and try to build from there and say, yeah, this might have been more recently horrible, so there's got to be a part price to be paid or whatever. But, you know, it's, it, it's not one thing to say, hey, Group X is the most horrible group in the world. That That's, you know, that that really doesn't work. And I, I think that's sort of what you say, like oppression doesn't work. You didn't use the word oppression, I, I, but basically economic uh, uh, oppression. But it, you mentioned Ukraine and, uh, you know, as we're recording, it's July of 2023. These shows are designed to be evergreen, but uh, this, this Garden Views is more topical. So what would you do if, you know, someone came to you and, and said, you know, John, what are the first, what are, you know, the three or five things that we should try to focus on to, you know, get Russia out of Ukraine or to end the conflict? Maybe, maybe you don't, that's not the end that you foresee. I don't know. But, um, you know, like top five things that you would suggest or, you know, positions, tactics, whatever. Yeah. The number one, and it flows right out of, um, what we've been talking about so far is, to put an offer on the table to end all trade sanctions. Um, we've just finished working on a paper on uh, trade sanctions and their efficacy. And the, the, there's some excellent studies on how well trade sanctions work. And uh, only about 25% of the time do they succeed in their stated political goals. The other 75%, they don't work. And in fact, they work against us because, you know, think about it. Think about it for a minute. The, nobody enjoys being punished. Well, maybe there are some, right. but you know, if someone punishes you, you get pissed off usually, and you want to get even. 
And that's what trade sanctions do. They're a form of punishment. And uh, my, my current mantra is um, the primordial persuasion was punishment. The first sophistication is exchange. Exchange makes us human. You know, before that, we were, you know, 300,000 years ago, we were punishing each other to get what we wanted. And then somehow we came across this idea of exchanging things. And we need to get back to that. Um, so the idea is offer to the Russian people. I don't think you can negotiate with Putin, by the way. Um, but offer to the Russian people, listen, if we can get over this problem, we can drop all trade sanctions. And we ought to be saying the same thing to the Cubans. We've done work in Cuba. Um, I, uh, we've done work in Iran. Say the same thing to them. You know, we're punished. We're using coercion and punishment. And it just doesn't work and it makes things worse. And most of the time, the people really suffer, not the politicians. They're sitting on a pot of money and uh, they're still eating um, uh uh, eating well caviar. Yeah. <laughs> caviar from Russia. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I I hear what you're saying, and you know, it's like, so what would be a first solution to someone who seems to be obstinate? I mean, the international community seems to use sanctions instead of using arms, you know, instead of using violence. So if sanctions aren't a good solution and arms aren't a good solution uh, and you already have some form of commerce together, is the solution more commerce? You, you, you kill someone with kindness, you get more honey, you get more bees with honey than vinegar kind of thing? Is it, you know, or is there some first solution saying this will happen or, or this? I don't want to put words in your mouth. Yeah, there are really three ways that commerce works. Um, one is as these thousands of people engage uh, in commerce, they learn about each other's culture and their country. You know, American companies have to do marketing research and they learn about how the cultures work in those places. And so there's that, and, and there's this interpersonal learning. So interpersonal relationships are established. The second way is the old uh, argument that it creates interdependence. And certainly that's true with China. There's never going to be a war between the United States and China. I don't care what any of the CIA has to say about it or our military people. It's not going to happen because neither side can afford that war. Right. Um, if, if there was even a dust-up between the two countries – and trade were uh, stopped between the U.S. and China. There'd be chaos in China within six months. So it's just not going to happen. Um, so this interdependence is really important. And when they established the European Union, they understood that. Um, too bad the Brits kind of lost the bubble with Brexit. But um, So that's the second way. But the third way is that uh, trade helps is maybe the most important way. It helps with invention. We borrow ideas from one another and we create better things and it, it creates world progress. The invention that comes from the diversity of international trade. And, uh, so for example, um, uh, Tehran has the worst smog in the world. 
they'd be very interested in uh, electric vehicles. Right now, they don't have any. But this is something we can trade with them, and maybe they can even improve on electric vehicles to reduce the pollution in Tehran. It's just there are all kinds of opportunities for invention when we get people, uh, diverse groups together, whether it's men, women, foreigners, ethnic groups, whatever you want to say. That's uh, where creative, creative thinking and invention come from, those kinds of interactions. In what I think is an easier case, I hope anyway, Cuba. It, it's been, what, 60, 70 years of sanctions. They really haven't worked. I mean, I think every country that has sanctions, at some point, the people get used to it. You Just like inflation, you, you, you don't like it, but you get used to it. You begrudge it. And at some point, you stop blaming your own government, at least not as much as you blame whoever's doing it to you. And it just seems like there's a, a very dedicated voter base in like two counties in southern Florida that that are you know keeping this whole whole thing up, um, but you know Cuba is what ninety miles from South Florida. It it could probably be a tourist paradise. It's probably already a bit of a tourist paradise for people from all other countries. But everybody knows that without American tourists in the Caribbean, it's you know the, you're not going to get that next level stuff. You're not going to get that you know, the Meyer Lansky dream of, uh, of another Las Vegas or whatever. Um, and so what, what would, I, I know we haven't finished on Ukraine, but what, what would your approach be to Cuba today? And, and I'm going to go on a wild assumption that would be similar with Venezuela, who's apparently sitting on a lake of heavy oil, but oil nonetheless. Yeah. I can't speak much about Venezuela. Cuba, I know really well. We've been taking groups of MBA students there. Um, during the last 10 years, we've probably taken 10 different groups. Um, we have them work with Cuban entrepreneurs in uh, trying to improve uh, Cuban uh, companies' operations, both state-owned and privately owned. And so our MBA students from UC Irvine are going there and meeting with the Cubans. We want to bring the Cubans back to the States to show them how our system works, but we can't get them visas. And so we're trying to encourage trade and this interpersonal interaction at the same time. We were lucky enough to have a group of students when Obama came to Havana, and many of our students saw him give his speech in the rain at uh, in old Havana, and that was really something. And uh, for the Cuban people, but also uh, Americans interested in international trade. Have you and, tried the uh, religious exemption thing, visa? Like if they if, um, if they convert yeah. to like Orthodox something, they they might there's like religious ex- exchanges. Well, that's an interesting idea. We've tried about everything. I don't think we've tried that one though. There you but, go. Um, Anyway, we're, we're still involved. We had a group from the business school go there this last spring. And the, our students love it. It's interesting. The other thing is that Cuba has something really important to give us. They have a great healthcare system. And it's not just Michael Moore's movie about it. Mm-hmm. Um, we've spent time studying their healthcare system. They have really good technology and good scientists. But the best thing they have is a delivery system that works. Our delivery system does not work, and things are getting uh, a little bit 
<laughs> things aren't getting a little bit, things are getting much worse as the elderly hit our healthcare system. Right. The Cubans have, are, have really good uh, technology and know-how in that area. So we have something to trade there. And uh, the Cubans are willing. Of course, Trump blocked that. And I'm pissed off at Biden because he hasn't done much about it recently. I, fortunately, he's starting to talk to China again. Yeah. And I'm quite pleased about that. And uh, that needs to go forward. Um, but Trump did a lot of damage in a lot of ways. And I have to say, one of my one of the, the favorite things that I learned in writing Charlotte's War was I learned about learn more about the damage Richard Nixon did to the world. Yeah. Um, and not just Vietnam, but getting into uh, what he was up to. For me, the, the best part of that was going back to the 1946 election when he ran for Congress. John Kennedy was running for Congress in Massachusetts. Nixon was running um, for Congress in Southern California, about 20 miles from where I live. And their approaches were so different. Nixon was red baiting already. And he continued to red bait throughout his career. Kennedy was much more interested in the United Nations and peace and uh, building relationships. You know, he had the Peace Corps and, and things like that once he became president. But even you could see this big difference even in 1946. And basically the two kinds of damage um, Nixon delivered. One was the war on drugs. And um, the, the, the history of that is in my drug book. And that's frightening by itself. But if you look at the impact he's had, we're still bitching about commies. That's mm -hmm. the big complaint with China. Um, right, which is not a communist country except in name. That's right. It's not even a communist country. It's not even close. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know if you can see it or your, your viewers will be able to see this book, The Cox Report. In 1999, my congressman here in Orange County uh, was the lead, uh, was the chair of a committee that looked at Chinese espionage. On the back of the book, and I'll read it for your listeners. Um, so this is a book published by a congressional committee called the Cox Report, but on the back of the book is China's Target, America. You know, in the 1990s, everybody was doing espionage on America. The French were taping, ta making tape recordings on commercial flights. <laughs> and um, so what the Bush administration did, excuse me, was try to make an issue about China, this pivot to China. We no longer want to beat up on the the Soviet Union. Uh, in fact, there's no more Soviet Union to beat up on. Which Bush administration, uh, the HW or W? W. Okay. And so he ran in 2000, in large part, focusing on this pivot to China, which was really costly because 9-11, while 9-11 was happening, we were focused on China. We had an airplane that had had touched a Chinese aircraft and our plane crash landed in China. And, you know, that was the big issue. And then 9-11 pops up. And that was the real problem that the, the Bush administration missed completely because they were playing Nixonian type uh, China games. 
And this just goes on and on. Um, there's no reason to be afraid of China. China has huge problems. Our baby boom problem is probably our, uh, the, the easy, easiest to foresee problem for this country. It's happening right now, and it's awful, and it's getting worse. China's population distribution is much worse than ours. And for that matter, so is the Soviet, uh, Russian uh, population. They've got huge problems uh, uh, that are going to be plaguing them for years. And it's just, you know, the nuclear weapons thing, yes, um, uh, the Russians have 5,000, we have 5,000. The Chinese really aren't even in the game. They have, I don't know, 400. We're, we're not going to have a nuclear war with China ever. It just doesn't make sense. So anyway, I'm I'm kind of talking too much. And no, you're the guest. You're, you're the one that's supposed to be doing the talking. Um, yeah. So, so this China, let me just finish that. Sure. So the China thing that's still plaguing us goes all the way back to Nixon's anti-communist stuff and this fear of communism it taking over the United States, which made no sense if you read Marx. Marx said you have a communist revolution when you have a uh, bourgeoisie and a proletariat when you have a divided society. We never had a divided society in the States. Um, we always had a middle class. So there was uh, absolutely no, it made no sense. Anyway, I'll be quiet. <laughs> no, don't be quiet. Um, so let's jump back. So China, what, what would you do about Formosa, Taipei, Taiwan, whatever people want to call it? Um, same, same islands. Um, you know, do you think we just keep the same policy and just ignore the saber rattling that it's not really going to be a problem? Yeah, I think we need to encourage both sides, and maybe it's more behind the scenes um, to, to try to work out their differences. I mean, before Trump, things were going quite smoothly. Um, if you, I don't know if you have an, well, you're it's an Apple podcast, right? Sure. I mean. They, that's where Apple phones come from. The, right. This great invention that's going on between uh, German, Japanese, South Korean, uh, American engineers, and Chinese engineers produce this great product, which provides uh, communication. And that's a gift of Honhai, which owns Foxconn. Honhai is a Taiwan company. It owns Foxconn, and Foxconn as the labor force that's putting all those Apple phones together. And this is a great gift. And um, we can do more there. The other common problems we have is uh, environmental stuff. Oh, geez. We really need to help each other. We, we keep track. We have something at UC, UC Irvine called the U.S.-China Barometer, where we try to do what Pinker said. Pinker said, look at the trend lines. Mm -hmm. And we've been following the relationship between the U.S. and China uh, for more than a decade. And we can look back 20 years now and see how the trends are going. And, you know, the huge problem facing both countries is uh, climate change and, and getting control of that. And um, we need to collaborate. Uh, this fentanyl thing, we need to collaborate, but mainly we need to work on demand in the United States because it's coming from Mexico and China. Um, but we've got all these reasons to work together, and all we've got, um, you know, driving the wedge between us is guys like Nixon from uh, the 1940s. Right. That's really the disturbing part of the story.
Not uh, using the, they say you are always fighting the last war. And it seems like in some cases we're fighting, you know, two or three wars ago. Um, I mean, the Russians right now seem to be fighting World War One in, in, in Ukraine uh, with, with some upgraded weapons. Um, I, do you, this is complete speculation and based on what you just said. So I know that the CHIPS Act was passed a couple of years ago in the Biden administration. That was to develop more chips manufactured here in the United States, which is great. America first, all that. But one of the things about Taiwan is they like something like 80 or 90 percent of the top quality chips come out of Taiwan that by being used by everyone, including China, that's putting them in those phones that's being sold to us here in America. Um, do you think that the Chips Act may also be a way to make America an importer to China so that they are not so reliant on Taiwan to maybe alleviate whatever fears or or uh, paranoia they have about Taiwan sort of, you know, cutting them off from the, that market? Yeah, I mean, the fear thing, uh, being cut off from access to the best chips uh, is a, a big problem. And that that really wasn't much of a worry before Trump and my colleague, Peter Navarro. Peter Navarro was also at UC Irvine. I worked with him for 25 years. We had uh, books out at the same time on China. His was Be Afraid of China. Our China book was China's an Opportunity. Right. I told Peter, Peter, this is great. We can do seminars together and we can argue about uh, the China relationship. This is to, uh, circa 2008. And he wouldn't do it yeah, because no. he really didn't know anything about China. Right. He just like, he likes to talk. He doesn't, he's, he's yeah. gotten himself into a bunch of trouble since then. Um, so, all right. So we have Taiwan. We talked about Cuba, um, uh, you know, trying to build the exchange. Um, we never quite finished Ukraine other than uh, remove sanctions or pro- a date certain to remove sanctions if X occurs. I assume X means, uh, you know, a c- cessation of hostilities. Does that also mean leaving all territory, in- including the Crimea? You know how Russia likes their ports. <laughs> yes. Yeah, in 2014, I wrote a letter to the Time magazine, which they published. And I that was right after the Russians took back Crimea. And I argued at that point in time um, that the, the most amazing fact of the last century was the, the peaceful dissolution of the Soviet Union. That if you look at that, 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 you would never predict a peaceful disillusion. No. And I called the the Crimea thing a mistake. Um, part of the reason I called it that is because I think the majority in Crimea speak Russian as the first language. Now, uh, so that was my statement back in 2014. That's when... Uh, Things didn't get really crazy like they are now, and all the killing has been happening. But whose mistake? Was it the mistake of the rest of the world and its lack of response, or was it Russia's mistake or something else? Yeah, it was probably everybody's mistake. If I would have been advising Putin about Ukraine, which obviously I wasn't, I would have said, you know, why don't you look at how wealthy Ukrainians are compared to Russians? Because... The Russian per capita income is about three times that of Ukrainians. 
before all this violence started again. And so what Putin is doing, it would be like the United States taking over Mexico. Right. You know, I mean, uh, the income difference between the United States and the average Mexican is about the same. It's about a third. Why would we do that? Right. And I, it makes no, it made no economic sense. Obviously, there's all this cultural stuff and all this um, Peter the Great stuff <laughs> being from St. Petersburg that's motivating him. Um, that's why I, I, I don't know how it's going to end, but I know that it would do a lot of, of good if the trade sanctions were offered to be released. And by the way, the only use of trade sanctions, since they never accomplish or seldom accomplish their goals, is to make politicians look good to their constituencies. I'm being a tough guy. I'm going to sanction the hell out of those Russians. Well, your, your friend Trump, he had a trade war against China on soybeans, lost. They bought their soybeans from, I think, Brazil. And U.S. farmers will never get those contracts again. And what happened is the taxpayers paid farmers billions of dollars, you know, to not sell soybeans, basically. Uh, but that money isn't going to last forever either. Um, on your friend Putin uh, and Ukraine, uh I mean, I, I've heard all sorts of theories and some of them are definitely more for Garden of Doom, but you know, that one on the, you know, the Rus Kiev being one nation, all that. I'll, I'll just turn our attentions to the signatory documents establishing the USSR and the dissolution documents of the USSR. And the three initial signatory states were Russia, Belarus, and Ukraine. The signatory countries on the dissolution of the USSR were again as identified as the something the founding nations that formed the USSR the, the, the verbiage is wrong that I'm using and again was signed by Russia Belarus and Ukraine so you know it's obvious nonsense it's one country was not recognized as two different states it, it was as recently as the formation and dissolution of the USSR and also in the nuclear exchange with uh, security guarantees guaranteed by Russia for the, for the nation of Ukraine. So, I mean, all of yeah, yeah this, uh, any story you're hearing otherwise is, you know, there's no other way to put it other than, well, there's probably lots of ways to put it other than bullshit, but that, that one, that word seems to be the most appropriate. Well, the other, I was looking recently at um, the tr trade relationship between Ukraine and Russia and they were fighting over the pipeline 20 years ago over prices and, and delivery and all that kind of stuff. And, um, yeah, so this is all bad. But here's my hope. Mm -hmm. Here's my hope is that this is so awful that maybe we'll remember that coercion doesn't work and we can have the rest of the century without this international incursion uh, and a coercion as a way to handle international relations. Um, I, by the way, I was reminded, I, I, so I'm in a business school and I'm constantly saying free enterprise is important and free trade are important. And I was reminded by one of my colleagues at UC Irvine the other day that the institutions are important uh, as well. And one of the things we lost in the U.S.-China relationship with Trump was the World Trade Organization. 
we were, had a very good record. We kept track of the record of um, trade disputes solved between the U.S. and China, and it was an excellent track record. There weren't a lot of them, but they were getting solved through mediation. And yeah, you know, Trump just basically destroyed that. We need to get that back too. The so the international institutions are important for peace. Um, but I think the bottom line is getting trade going and keeping trade going and getting to that creative stuff. That's the key thing. All right. And so there are, there's a, a burgeoning situation, which I thought was asleep that we're, I'm going to raise next. And it may be the same answer as Venezuela, that that's not something you're familiar with. Um, and then I want to get back into, uh, I want to ask you a, a few different scenarios, but one of them is definitely I want to get back to the war on drugs and any alternatives. And then we're going to get to the game I like to play where trying to extrapolate the laws or norms of Earth and try to extrapolate them to space. Um, but the first one, Sudan right now apparently is on the brink of civil war just years after, you know, we, we thought that immediate crisis was solved by creating Sudan and South Sudan, making two separate nations, which they wanted for years and years and years. George Clooney, you know, told me that that would resolve it. And I believe George Clooney because he's very handsome. Um, but uh, apparently it hasn't. Uh, I'm not sure where all the issues are. I know that it seems to be a, uh, it, it seems like it's an issue between factions of the military in, in this particular case, but there has to be issues with the populations that, uh, you know, support or oppose these factions in the military. Uh, I have another guest on maybe, you know, Patricia, Professor Patricia DeGenero, uh, who if you don't know her, you should make, you should make each other's acquaintance. Um, but, um, you know, we talked about it a little bit, but what would your approach be to what's going on in Sudan now? Yeah, I, again, I don't know that area at all, but I can, I can say one thing. Yep. It's a question. Who's providing the bullets? Yeah. Who's providing the bullets for that war? And you know that there are American suppliers and you know that there are Russian suppliers and British suppliers. Who's supplying the ammunition so that people can kill each other? And, you know, the cold, the end of the Cold War was so important because we stopped supplying the bullets in so many places where we were before. And so I, that, that's my question. And nobody's talking about that because there's a lot of people making a lot of money supporting that conflict. Well, let's just say that, uh, well, well, let's not say anything. Let's say, let's say we identify that it is, it's the British, it's the Americans, it's the Russians and the Chinese. What do we, what do we do about that? How do we approach it? Because we, you've already said sanctions aren't a great idea. So how would you stop the flow of those bullets? Well, uh, in the United States, we only have control over American companies do. And we just uh, stop that trade. By the way, when I say trade causes peace, obviously, if the trade is in weapons, that's the one example that doesn't seem to make sense. But uh, we stop selling arms and try to uh, get the other folks to do the same thing. Right. I know this is unavoidable. I know that you have the answers to everything. And, and you already said that you don't know that much about Suzanne. So I, I, I 
tipped off a, a very long question for, you know, a, an answer that was predicted earlier with Venezuela. And here I go to, into the breach again, I do it. Um, but I did read a book. It was fiction, but the authors, you know, one was a retired admiral, blah, blah, blah. Um, and in that book, one of the plot lines was that you would, you know, you would sell arms to a country like Chad and they would make their way to the border and, and they'd find their way into Sudan anyway. Um, you know, you know, and I, I guess Chad is an ally of the U.S. and the French and, uh, you know, a couple of other places, uh, according to this book anyway, I haven't done, but, um, is, you know, is that just something that's going to happen no matter what? You can't stop all black markets. You can just, you know, try to do the best you can. Yeah. Well, I, I, I'm not sure that's true that you can't, you can't control them. Um, in the current political circumstance in the United States, I suppose you can't because, uh, the weapons makers have too much political sway. Uh, and the American people need to stand up to those folks. And, uh, that's, a, that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother area. But that's, that's all I can think to do is, is stop the arms trade. I think this would be yeah. the perfect time because the, the weapons makers, well, we've got to, res, you know, we've got to restock the American, um, you know, reserves and, and, um, arsenal. What is that the right word now? Arsenal. Uh, so they, they, they wouldn't, they wouldn't lose a dollar, you know, uh, you know, I, listen, I'm sure some of them would be smart enough to see past, you know, a, a couple of years from now, but they, they could, they could sell strictly to, to the United States government for the next couple of years, just restocking our arms or maybe helping, you know, the, the Brits or the French or whomever and, and, you know, ne never have to sell anything to Sudan. Now, I know that there's no such thing as too much profit, but they, they only do have up to X capacity. You know, that, that's, that's part of what I'm hearing is that, you know, we, we don't, we can't make enough bullets to, to send. Yes. Yes. Well, it's interesting. I was in a meeting in the nineties, right after the cold war ended. And, uh, they were talking about cutting defense spending then. And they, and it was cut dramatically despite predictions. And it really hurt Cal the California economy, uh, because California is a big, uh, recipient of defense funds, obviously. Um, but we got over that and, uh, I, I don't know. If you look at defense spending, well, you know the numbers. I mean, we spend about 40% of the world's entire uh, investment in weaponry. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know why we do that. Because if you believe in Pinker, what Pinker is saying, and I, and I do, we're at this great peace right now. And why are we still spending so much money? on weapons and it's because of the fear mongering going back to Nixon and fear of the commies, and all this kind of stuff. And uh, we've got Americans have no reason to fear anything. Um, we've got more weapons than anybody. We have more uh, civilian firearms than uh, anybody. We've got weapons all over the place. And in one sense, that's a reflection of our fear of the future and, Really, we're, we're quite secure. Um, but, you know, we're getting back to the voters and the political system, and that's, that complicates things, of course. Okay. Well, let's get back to then 
fentanyl because well, you know one one of the issues is how do you how do you engage in diplomacy or work for peace with non-state actors so you know terrorists you know which are sometimes religious sometimes they have uh, another philosophy that's akin to religion and criminals and and that that and we can focus on the war on drugs um you know, so we don't have to call out anyone as a terrorist or, a, you know, a religious fanatic and get them upset with us. Uh, nobody likes fentanyl. So, um, but, you know, whatever whatever you think, I mean, I assume that you'd have a similar approach for any non-state actor. Um, but, you know, what what would be your suggestions, your ideas for addressing the, you know, the re-gauging the, the war against drugs? Okay, so I'm, wrote about fentanyl in 2015. The book is uh, called, it was published in 2016. The book is called Spiced, S-P-I-C-E-D, The Global Marketing of Psychoactive Substances. And there's a chapter on each of these substances that we consume around the world that affect our brain uh, in negative ways. So there's a chapter on salt, a chapter on sugar, alcohol, tobacco, marijuana, um, cocaine, um, the opioids, where fentanyl fits in. And we wrote about the fentanyl problem was easy to see coming in 2015. I wrote about it then. Um, The solution to all these problems is not uh, uh, keeping the drugs out with arms, using coercion. The solution is get rid of all the laws against drugs and um, and uh, put all these different drugs in drug stores, if you like, kind of the way the Swedes have liquor stores. You can only buy liquor in a government store. But the key is to educate the masses on the dangers of all these drugs. And by the way, fentanyl is not the worst. Sugar is. And that's a whole other topic. But um, that's my problem. It just, yeah, but uh, the key is, and what we suggest in plain detail, is that there be licenses given to get into those stores, like a driver's license. Mm-hmm. And so you have to pass a test on the big danger of fentanyl is, is and a lot of these drugs, is what you get on the street, you, God knows what it is. A lot of those deaths are those. Right. There's another reason for doing this, by the way, and that's the elderly, managing the elderly population. We're going to end up with a lot of pain, and we're going to need a lot of painkillers. And uh, we should, it's a matter of um, a personal freedom that I should be able to have access uh, to painkillers as long as I'm understanding what's happening with them. And we talk about that topic, actually, in our multi-generational book. We have a chapter on end of life and how the rules are changing for the baby boom generation. But access to a variety, and, you know, the whole drug thing is changing. I'm sure you've had, maybe you've had a show on it. It is changing dramatically where psychedelics are being looked at as useful. Now that we've got this Nixonian control over drugs out of the way, we can begin to do, study them. I'm a little bit worried about marijuana um, because we don't know the long-term effects of marijuana usage. We know that people don't tend to kill people when they're on marijuana, and, and so that's nice. But we don't know about the long-term effects because we haven't had a chance to study it. 
now we can start to look at that. And that, that's a good thing. And then whatever the lesson is can be put into these training programs for these 12-year-olds who are facing the temptation in their schools. How would you approach or advise the policymakers? Because they're going to be hit with, with two arguments. Well, now the government is getting into the, into the drug business by taxing it uh, and license fees. So now the government is drug dealers. And two, this is just a reward to Big Pharma who, you know, sort of contributed to this in the first place. I mean, is it just something where people, they just have to have the courage of their conviction, say, we've tried everything else. It hasn't worked. This is what we're trying now. Yes, you're, you're, you're correct that we are going to raise revenues off of this. And yes, you're correct that the, the producers will make a profit, uh, but less people will be dead and there'll be lesser costs, you know, to, to the public health system. And we've waited and we think everything else has been a disaster. And, and so we're trying this and just, you know, let the chips fall where they may in the election, you know, hope that honesty is the best policy. Um, you know, I, I don't know, or, or you know, because I, I just think that those are the two things that you know we're going to hear from. Well, basically, my answer to all that is yes. But in the book, what we do with each of these drugs is we look at the four P's of marketing. I, I don't know if you know, but it, we look at the price, um, how how they're uh, promoted. Um, we look at the product themselves, <coughs> and I'm going to forget the fourth P right now. Pro, not profit. Um, anyway, we control these, the advertising. We control all these things. We can control all these things. Um, the California case in marijuana is interesting. What's happened is it's been legalized, but the uh, uh, black market is dominating the legal market. And the producers are pissed off because they're having to pay high taxes one of the key things is to set your pricing. One of the key ways to reduce consumption is to raise prices. You have to set pricing um, uh, just above the black market. If you get too far above, then the black market starts to take on power. And so there's got to be flexible pricing uh, uh, around these products um, to prevent the black market from taking over. It's not easy, but the current system is not working. Uh, we have an epidemic. The American um, the American longevity has declined in part because of uh, the fentanyl crisis, throw in COVID and throw in uh, a, an increase in violence, uh, a short-term increase in violence, I hope. And we get uh, the American longevity declining. That's really embarrassing. Would you suggest the same approach for you when you said all, I'm assuming when you said all the drug laws that that would include heroin, cocaine, whatever, every, everything's treated the same. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. All right. So now we're going to play my fun little game, which I don't know how fun this is, but we're going to extrapolate like what would John Graham's approach to forging some sort of international structure or, or uh, system uh, as we go space bound, um, and you can use whatever examples you think work, whether it's maritime law, aviation, Antarctica, or some some something else. This this is your chance to start something almost brand new with almost no real law, and even that law is sort of treaty based, and you know, and 
you know, not signed on by everybody. So this is, this is literally a blank slate for you to say how, how we're going to proceed into space as a human community. Yeah. I, my initial response is I'm not worried about it at all. <laughs> I don't think we're going to get very far. Um, I don't think that space travel, uh, and I, I hope I'm wrong, but I don't think that space travel is practical unless you have speed of light travel. And so I'm not too, in one sense, I'm not worried about it. But to answer your question, despite that bias, we had a really good thing going with the Russians. We collaborated at the International Space Station. Imagine that. We collaborated, you know, for two decades before Putin got pissed off. And we collaborated and we included a lot of other countries in the International Space Station and the development. We still have people from other countries. So we have a model for that. The other model is uh, the South Pole. <coughs> and we seem to have not had anything to fight over there. Nobody's discovered oil in Antarctica uh, yet. It's probably sitting there. But uh, we seem to have gotten along with these multinational agreements, law, law of the sea is another example. But I don't think we're going to find anything to fight over in space. Um, other than fun. maybe placement of weapons or something. <laughs> but um, th- I just don't, I just don't see that that's going to happen. And, uh, but we have good models. I was watching a PBS special. Uh, my brother had knee surgery and I was kind of, uh, helping them out. And we were watching a PBS special on uh, the Apollo mission to the moon. And one of the things that came out is Kennedy and the Russians were having talks about collaborating in space in the 1960s when it was still the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. We were still competing in all these different ways. It still made sense to an extent to perhaps work together. And that never went any, and in the, in the documentary, they explained why it didn't work out. But then we have this great example of the International Space Station and uh, working together. And, and uh, we need to get back to that. We need to get back to that. And one of the things I'm going to help, I think is going to help with all this international communication is all this uh, AI. Um, pretty soon we're going to be talking, I'll be able to, if you're French, I can speak in English and AI will real-time translate it into French. And uh, I think that that's going to make it, that's going to help a lot. Well, how are we going to so, negotiate with AI when, when they realize that they don't need us, but uh, or it doesn't need us? <laughs> well, I don't know. We need, to, we need to keep a plug that can be pulled. Yes, ah, <laughs> I know. I don't know. I know the answer to that. But, I, you know, I'm looking at the health, in our uh, multi-generational book, we're looking at the healthcare system, which is just a disaster happening. It's not, it's not going to happen. It's happening right now. Um, I've got a son that's a doctor and uh, he can't see a new patient for, I don't know, two or three months because he's so busy. Right. And, um, and so overwhelmed with, with uh, particularly the elderly patients and hopefully, um, that'll add capacity to the system. AI will add capacity. And there's a lot of 
you know, all this is six months old. The whole discussion is six months old. But I think there's a lot of opportunity there to um, get us through some of these problems. Well, I hope that you are right with that. Anyway, uh, we've gone an hour, so I want to be respectful of your time. But I certainly want to give you an opportunity. First of all, is there anything that I should have asked you about that I didn't? And then, of course, restate your books and where people can find you and follow you, assuming you want to be found. Yeah, um, I I think we covered about everything. we didn't cover some of the humor in Charlotte's War, which was a lot of fun developing, um, and the romance stuff and and uh, the everyday life stuff of that extended family. Um, that was a lot of fun for me to write, and, and so I hope it was uh, interesting to read. The way to get a hold of... The best way to get a hold of me is um, to go to the book website. It's grahamsbooks.com, grahamsbooks.com. This, uh, assuming that you post this, uh, that'll be posted there for people to see too. I also uh, um, have a photography website called grahamsgalleries.com. And uh, the photography is part of the uh, books for kids. I have two books for kids um, that are trying to put uh, extended families together. And those books are dis- discussed there. We didn't talk about those at all. But, well, um, well feel free to list you know, all of the books that, that you've written. I know some are under John Graham and some are under Jay Lawrence Graham. Um, but, yeah, why don't you just give a, a recitation on all of your books? Okay. Um, so four of my books are on uh, international negotiation. The first one was on U.S.-Japan. Then we did U.S. and China. Then we did one on um, the rest of the world. It's called Global Negotiation. We're revising that book at the moment. Um, maybe the most important book of all the negotiation books is called um, Building Relationships Through Inventive Negotiation. The title is And with a question mark, A-N-D, question mark. Um, they're all available on Amazon, but you can see them all at uh, all these uh, nonfiction books listed also on uh, grahamsbooks.com. International Marketing is the textbook. It's uh, now, we just finished the 19th edition of that book. Wow. I have co-authors, um, uh, on that book and most of my books. Uh, the drug book, again, uh, the idea is to create peace in the streets uh, and uh, get around this whole drug war idea. And it, But it leans on my knowledge of marketing and international marketing. And so we describe how all these products are marketed internationally, including fentanyl, including marijuana, etc. Um, that's the name of that book is Spiced. The Global Marketing of Psychoactive Substances. Uh, the multi-generational book, um, right, the current edition, which is the second edition, is called All in the Family. Uh, and it's uh, pr- uh, Practical Considerations of Multi-Generational Living. Uh, the new title is Under One Roof. And that will be out around the first of the year. That will be the third edition of that book. The two kids' books, one is called um, The Great Squirrel Burglar, and it's about a grandfather squirrel 
and uh, his grandson, and they're trying to find uh, where the grandfather stashed his nuts and acorns. Of course. That's a kid's book. And then uh, the photography book is called Imagine Everywhere. And uh, that book is intended to bring families and the world together through photography. And uh, I think that's that covers them all. I, you know, I've got a couple more in development, one on Iran and maybe one on Russia. Huh? Well, excellent. Yeah, when the sanctions are over. Well, but, um, well maybe we're when you're uh, finished with those or further in the process, you'll come back again and talk about those. Um, folks, the end question mark, by the way, plays a prominent role in Charlotte's War. I'm not going to spoil it. And or as symbol ampersand question mark. So that's another little uh, tease to pick up the book and read it so that you know what that means. You can be in the in crowd that, that knows what that means. And, you know, uh, we've heard a lot about talk, talk, talk. And, and your, you know, your inclination might be, well, he's, a, he's just a progressive peace snake from California. The man was a Navy SEAL um, and an active duty for four years. So shut up. <laughs> so, yeah, I should, I should, and I should add to this, though, that I was never in the war. Yeah, it's, it's, you were still I was in, the seal. <laughs> and I, I'm happy about that. But anyway, uh, I'm sure, but you, you're still a Navy SEAL, um, and so uh, he's earned his right to to say it, and uh, obviously got published and does things with Harvard and places like that. So, all right, I couldn't thank you enough for being on the show, and. Uh, Hopefully, uh, we'll hear from you again. Folks, uh, check out his books, and, and I'm going to attempt to put the links and whatnot in the show notes. Um, and we thank you for listening to Garden Views, and uh, give us a rating and a review and a referral, and you'll hear from us again next week. Jeff, thanks so much. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with your audience, and I, I appreciate getting the word out. And I appreciate that you couldn't figure out the end of the book. <laughs> Until you got to it. That's right. Well, thank you, Frank. Okay. I dreamed I replaced ignorance, stupidity, and hate. I dreamed the perfect union and a perfect law on the night. All I dreamed I forgot The day John Kennedy died I dreamed that I could do the job That others had done I dreamed that I was uncorrupt And fair to everyone I dreamed I wasn't gross or base, a criminal on the tape. And most of all, I dreamed I forgot the day John Kennedy died. Remember where I was that day, I was upstate in a bar. The 
team from the university was playing football on TV. Then the screen went dead and the announcer said there's been a tragedy. Unconfirmed reports the president's been shot and he may be dead or dying. Talking stopped, someone shouted, What? I ran out to the street. People were gathered everywhere saying, Did you hear what they said on TV? And then a guy in a Porsche with his radio hit his horn and told us the news. He says the president's dead. He was shot twice in the head in Dallas and they don't know by whom. I dreamed I was the president of these United States. I dreamed that I was young and smart and it was not a waste. I dreamed that there was a point to life and to the human race. I dreamed that I could somehow comprehend that someone shot him in the face. John Kennedy 